God, we just thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection. God, we're here to celebrate that. We celebrate it because as a result of it, we live. As a result of it, we have eternal life. It's been a gift, God, that's granted to those who believe, and we cannot thank you enough for the gift. God, as we open up your word this morning, God, I just pray that you would speak directly to us on what you want us to know, what you want us to hear, what you want us to do. God, we long for more of you, God, and we know that your voice is your word. And as it is spoken, God, we just pray that we see you in it. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, and we're walking through 1 Samuel. And just to catch you up to speed, if you've not been here yet, the first part of 1 Samuel, we see Hannah, um, who is barren, who cannot have a child, goes to the temple and pleads for a child, and ends up making a statement to, the, to God as she's pleading that, if God, if you give me a child, I'm going to give the child back to you. And she does get pregnant, and as a result of getting pregnant, uh, she nurses the child, and she gives the child to the temple for God's service. This child's name is, is Samuel. Now, last couple of weeks, you would see that inside this working environment, it's not a healthy working environment, you see Eli, who is the priest, um, and then you see his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and Hophni and Phinehas are, are using the temple for their good. We'll just put it that way. They're manipulating God to get what they want. They're feeding their own desires as they are the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the priests, the managers of the temple, and they're using God for their benefit and also their glory. But Samuel had a a pure heart, a heart that uh, was anchored into God, a heart that, uh, that sought God, a heart that ministered to God, a heart that ministered before God. And God has chosen to use Samuel. And as he's chosen to use Samuel, he ended up speaking to Samuel. And as he is speaking to Samuel, Samuel's laying on his bed, God gave him direction of what's going to take place. The direction that was going to take place is, I'm going to clean house. Eli's and his household are going to pay for the judgment. They're going to have judgment for what they're done. I'm taking them out. I'm wiping them out. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas um, are going to be gone. And as Samuel got that news, Eli pressed him on that news and said, tell me what God told you last night. And as Samuel told him what God told him, Eli is like, well, God's going to do exactly what he wants to do. And there's really nothing we can do about it. Leads us up into chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. This is nothing new. You have Israel and you have the Philistines at war. It seems like they've always been at war, and here's a battle that takes place. Israel lost this battle, and they lost 4,000 men in losing this battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So here's Hophni and Phineas thinking, 
we just lost 4,000 people in this war. We're not going to lose more people. They started remembering history about Jericho. Remember what took place in Jericho? They took the ark of the Lord to Jericho, the ark of the covenant of the Lord to Jericho. And they walked around seven times and the walls fell and they defeated Jericho with the power of the ark, the presence of the ark. He starts to think about that, you know. You know this thing that we have in this temple? It carried power back in the day. They also remembered that when Joshua had the ark of the Lord, it says, cross the Jordan. It's like, we can't cross the Jordan, it's too deep. Just take the ark of the Lord, let it go before you, step into it, and it'll part. Hophni and Phineas are thinking, whoa, we've got this power source. Grab the power source, and let's bring it back into battle. We lost 4,000 men, then... We're not going to lose it again. So they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And why and when they have learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp. So here the Ark of the Covenant comes into Israel, and it comes into Israel. It's like, hey, we're going to take the ark into war. What's Israel doing? They're, they're shouting. They're excited. We lost 4,000, but don't worry. We're not going to lose 4,000 again. Why? Because we have this ark of the covenant. What were the Philistines doing? Philistines heard the cry and scared them, according to verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid and they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They noticed that God came into the camp, scared them. Because they knew history too. You can see that they knew history. So as it scared them, you would think that the Philistines would not attack them. But that's not what they did. The Philistines got stronger with these words. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. They fled, every man to his own home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It's never happened before. The ark of the covenant's always been with God's people. The ark of the covenant is, <laughs> gets defeated. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to carry this power. Hophni and Phinehas grabbed a hold of the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into battle. And what happened? Two horrific things happened. 40,000 people died. And then the Ark was captured. Remember where Eli was at? Eli was back home. Number 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh. The same day, with the clothes torn, with the dirt in his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. For his tent trembled for the ark of the Lord. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. 
When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came to told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that they would not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come to battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the Lord has been captured. As soon as he mentioned that the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was told and heavy. For the man was tall, old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now this is no news to us. It was actually prophesied twice. It was told to Eli that, by God that he was going to be judged, and so was Hophni and Phinehas. It was told to Samuel that he was going to be judged. And so this is no news to us. As you're reading scripture, it all took place and happened. 19, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when he heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed, and gave, she bowed and gave birth, and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ishkabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God have been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. As we're looking at this passage, I just want to break it up into three different points. Number one, we've got to break it up into the ark of the covenant. Did you know that just through that passage I read, the ark of the covenant is mentioned 16 times? It's all about, it's all about the ark. The other area I want to break it up is, what did Hophni and Phinehas do wrong? What did they really do wrong? And then what we'll do is we'll look it into our culture. What do we do wrong? And is it parallel between Hophni and Phinehas in that process of doing wrong? The Ark of the Covenant. What is it? This is what it is. Number one, the Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) I'm just going to warn you. The Ark of the Covenant is so simple to understand that it's going to be really hard to explain. <laughs> just, just to be honest with you. So I'm, I'm just going to explain it here through a couple notes. And I hope that I don't lose you. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant. But let me say it a different way. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the ultimate covenant. Let's try to get the the words tracked and see what these words mean. Number two, ark means chest. The means ultimate. And covenant means promise. So you hear the ark, what was it talking about? It's talking about chest in the Old Testament. Gold chest that uh, God gave direction to Moses to build. That's, That's a chest. Where we really get confused is this word, the. It really kind of messes us up. 
What is the? The is a definite article that identifies the noun. In other words, you have the, and then they're going to give you the noun, and you're identifying the noun. Now, there's a lot of different covenants that are in the Bible. There's a Novaic covenant. And what, do you, what is the Novaic covenant? The Novaic covenant. That's, that's what it says. There's the Abrahamic covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant. That's kind of how it goes. There's a Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. But is there an ultimate covenant that like trumps all those? But that's even the wrong word to say it. Is there an ultimate covenant that takes all of those, puts them together, and makes this the covenant? Is there one above all others? You know, Barry Bonds uh, had the world record in home runs. And they put one of his last home run ball on auction. Do you know what it sold for? It sold for $752,000. It's a lot of money. Think, is that the ball that's out there? It's not the ball. And the reason why it's not the ball is because Babe Ruth, uh, during their all-star game, hit a home run as well. And it sold for $805,000. So that's the ball. But Mark McGuire came in, and he set the record above that. And when he set the record above that, guess what that ball sold for? $3 million. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands. Now we're into $3 million. So you have the ball, the ball, and then the ball. It's the, 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 the ultimate ball that carries the, 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 the value. So when you have the definite article, the, describing the noun, you have the Abrahamic, you have the Mosaic, you have the Davidic, then you have the ultimate covenant. You might say, well, I still don't understand. Hopefully number three will get us to understand. The gold chest in the Old Testament is the chest of the ultimate promise. Oh, I didn't describe promise. Lots of promises in the Bible. But is there an ultimate promise? promise that takes place. Yes, there is one ultimate promise that goes across every single other promise of the entire planet. I mean, it carries a massive amount of weight. Where is that ultimate promise located? It's located on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the ultimate promise is. It's right on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so you say, okay, it's the covenant. It's the, the promise. It's the ultimate one. Well, tell me what this promise looks like. Let's see what it looks like. Letter A, the ark represents the presence and glory of God. What is the presence and glory of God? Well, whenever we see the presence and glory of God, we hear the words, holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It means, be careful coming in my presence. It also means, if you sinned, you better not come close to my presence. That's what, that's what holy, holy, holy means. So it carries this, this power because it represents the glory of God. Letter B, the mercy seat, which is not the whole ark, it's the lid. The mercy seat represents the mercy of God. So when you start thinking about Mercy, I wonder if mercy's in this covenant. <laughs> I wonder if mercy is like in this promise, is, is in this promise. Um, 
Well, the lid, which is a big piece of the ark, is called the mercy seat. So probably mercy is going to be a little bit inside of this promise. Let's just look at it from pictures. So just to explain this, this is the Ark of the Covenant right here. What is in this box right here? The law. The tablets made of stones was placed in there. Also Aaron's rod was placed in there. And then some manna was placed in there. But the big thing is this is the law. And what sits on the law? The lid is the mercy seat. The mercy seat sits on top of what? The law. And then what's these big things here? Those are cherubim. Cherubim angels. And what do cherubim angels do? The cherubim angels are the angels that whenever you see the presence of God, they are there. I mean, they are in existence. We see that in Isaiah. We see that all the way through the Bible. The cherubim hold this high, high position. Well, they're sitting on top of the lid. And according to Leviticus 16, there was instructions to make them spread their wings and face each other and make sure that the wings are touching So they're sitting there facing each other, but what's here? Nothing is there. But is nothing always there? No, nothing's not always there. There's two items that go there. Two items that go there. One of the items is probably the most powerful thing in the world. The next picture shows it. Called the Shekinah glory. That's an item that goes there. I mean, you don't mess with the Shekinah glory and the law. That's sitting underneath it. I mean, it's just something you just don't mess with. The Shekinah glory is holy, holy, holy. Whenever God shows up all the way through the Bible, he, he shows up in whirlwinds. He shows up on Sinai with, with thunder. He shows up as a crackling piece of fire when he shows up to Abraham. He shows up as a wrestler. It's always the manifestation of God. It's always something very, very large. But this is the only manifestation of God where he keeps on going back to where the holy of holies goes. So that's one thing that shows up. Now what else would sit in, because it's called a throne, what else would sit on that throne besides the holy of holy? I mean, what would you put in between there? <laughs> that's what is in there. Blood is the only other thing you put in between there. And every single year, the priest would make an atonement for all the people, and they'd drop blood right here. Where is that? That's in between the two cherubims that are talking about the presence of God. And these two cherubims that are always in the presence of God, you're going to drop blood there? What does that mean? That means don't come into my presence unless your sins are atoned for. Do not come into my presence unless your sins are atoned for. So let's do the next slide. Two precious things. Look at that. Holy of holies. God. And then blood don't come into my don't come into my presence unless your sins are atoned for but where is this pointing us where is this going this atonement isn't working every single year <laughs> it's not the atonement is doing nothing but pushing us towards something because it's called a mercy seat where the ultimate blood will then be put on the mercy Seat for the salvation of every single person that believes in the one perfect Son of God who shed that blood. Hebrews 9, 11, 12 says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, meaning this is God. He entered once and for all into the holy place, walked unto the holy of holies, once and for all, not by the means of the blood of goats, it's a different blood, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. 9.15, therefore, he is a mediator of the new covenant, so that, the, that those who are called may receive the promise into eternal inheritance, so the death has occurred that redeems him from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the ultimate promise that God has given to mankind, which is Jesus Christ. And all the way through the Old Testament, they're just walking towards that one time where God leaves heaven, comes to earth, lives a perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice, dies being the perfect sacrifice for the glory of God, going to the grave, raising again three days later, willing to wash away my sins if I believe. So I can go into such that kind of glory when I die. The Ark of the Covenant is pointing towards. Let's pull away from that a little bit and let's talk about Hophni and Phinehas. What did they do wrong? What did Hophni and Phineas do wrong? Here's what Hophni and Phineas did wrong. Hophni and Phineas used the presence and glory of God to get what they wanted. I mean, you're talking about the Shekinah glory. You're talking about the mercy seat. You're talking about the ultimate promises. That's even, I keep on saying beyond the Abrahamic promise, but it works inside of the Abrahamic promise. It's not beyond the Novaic promise. It works inside the Novaic promise. These are little promises that are coming up to this ultimate promise. And guess who has it? Hophni and Phinehas. Think of the power that they have. And as a result of the power they have, what do they do with it? They use it for their own glory. They use it. They get dollars. They use it to cheat. They use it to get power. And all of a sudden, they're losing the war. And as they're losing the war, what do they do? <laughs> Let's go back and get it so we can win. You find that in 1 Samuel 4, 3. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Look at that word, it. I underlined it in our notes. The reason why I underlined it is because it shows the character of Hophni and Phinehas. We need it. I mean, if the character was halfway decent, was it Hophni and Phinehas, I mean, it would say, we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant so we can have the presence of God go before us to help us defeat the army. But it has nothing to do with the presence of God. It's just it. Why? Because they want to win. That's what they want to do. They want to win. They used God to get what they want. See that all the way through the story. But it does put us back into challenging maybe us today. 
What I mean by challenging us today, because we read the whole story, and you saw the story that took place, and you saw the judgment, and you saw the use of the Ark of the Covenant, and you saw the use of the power of God. Does that have relation with us? Because we don't have, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, but does that relate with us? Where do we go wrong? Well, ask the question, where does our culture go wrong? Where does our church go wrong? Where do Christians go wrong? Number five, we use the mercy seat of God to get what we want. We don't use the Ark of the Covenant. We don't take the Shekinah glory and bring it into war anymore. No, what we have is we have this mercy seat of God. The mercy has been granted to us. And when we look at that mercy, it should be blowing us away. But instead of looking at that mercy, we think, well, what can I get from it? When you look at um, our culture, there's something that's under attack more than anything. And I'm not going to say individuals attack it. I'm not going to say people attack it. I'm not even going to say our government attacks it. I'm going to say if all of them do, Satan is fueling this attack. And it is an aggressive attack. And it is an attack on one word. And it's the word, it's the word truth. Truth, just got, just got to get rid of the truth. What is evolution? Evolution is just, we just got to, we got to get rid of the truth. We got to get rid of the truth. We got to get rid of the truth. And they're just doing it to replace the truth. It's an attack. Because you've got to destroy the truth so it is presented. Now, if you look at our culture, we see the attack on truth, you know, through evolution. But I don't think it's working the way Satan wants it to work. It's not working the way. I mean, in other words, how many converts are being pulled away? I'm saying there's lots. But is there enough? How many people are being pulled away to say, okay, I will anchor onto evolution instead of truth and, and go in that direction? Some, maybe lots, but not enough, I believe, for Satan. So if you're going to attack the truth, you can't just replace the truth. You also have to water the truth down. And if you're going to attack the truth, you just don't attack it with one item because you're not going to get everybody that you're going to try to get. You're not getting enough. So you attack the truth by what? Replacing truth, but you also attack the truth by what? Watering it down. I think we're in an era right now where the truth isn't being attacked necessarily by by changing it as much as watering it down. What I mean by watering it down, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Is that where our country is kind of at right now? I mean, when the truth shows up, it seems like it used to be a really big deal, but it's not that big of a deal anymore. I mean, I don't want to get into political, but just to use a Durham report that comes through. There's a truth. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. Let's keep on moving. It's, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe it gets attacked through gender transformation. It's just not that big of a deal. What's going on in our culture in regards to this word truth more than it being changed? I'd say it's being watered down. And the scary part is that it moves aggressively into the church. And we don't even know that it's there. 
give you an example. 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if somebody wanted to become a Christian, they would come and they would come to a pastor's office or they'd come and talk to you and says, all right, I, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. Prove it to me. You know, give me the truth. <laughs> and then what you do is you would, you try to prove it to them. You, know, you got evolution, you got this, and you, and you would prove to them the truth because they're not going to believe it unless it's the truth. And that used to be the arguments. But it's not the argument, it seems like, anymore. You know what the argument is? Is does it work? Does it, does it work? I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I just want to know if it, if it, if it works. <laughs> I, just want, I, I just want to know if it, if it works. And what I mean by it, if it works is, is this Christianity fit in my schedule? You know, if it fits in my schedule, then, yeah, then I'll, be able, I'll be able to do it. Does it fit in my lifestyle? You know, it's, it's consistent with my lifestyle in some areas, but not consistent with my lifestyle in other areas. And as a result of just saying, oh, you know, truth is watering down, well, I'll take it or leave it. If it doesn't fit my schedule, chuck it. If it doesn't fit my lifestyle, chuck it. Does it fit in my line of my beliefs? I mean, I have a belief system. Does the Bible agree with me? I mean, that's, that's kind of how our, our, culture, our culture is working as a result of the fingers of watering the truth down so much that we more look at the Bible not as the truth, but is what is it going to do for me? And if it's not going to do anything for me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check it. I'm going to get rid of it. Bible carries some powerful statements. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> I'm not going to believe that one. <laughs> that's, that's where our world is at. But is it the, is it the truth? God talks about wrath. You know, I don't like that. Well, let's get rid of it. There's a lot of the areas and principles of the Bible that are okay, but a lot of the areas of the Bible that are not okay, and I'm going to determine if I'm going to believe in it or not, if they're okay or if they're not okay. And we can split it a little bit. Most of the Bible I agree with, but parts of the Bible I don't agree with. So I'll just take out the pieces that I don't agree with and, and the, the pieces I agree with, I'll just hang on to and I'll call myself a Christian. Hell? Heck no. I don't agree with that. Check it. Get rid of it. Homosexuality is a sin? No. We'll just get rid of that piece. Still use it. We'll just get rid of that piece. What we're doing is we're taking the truth. And what we're doing is we're using God off the truth to give us exactly what we want. It creeps into our culture. It creeps into the church where there's an expectation from God to meet your expectations. And if he doesn't meet your expectations, don't you hear the words, I don't believe in God anymore. Well, he didn't answer my prayer. I don't believe in God anymore. He didn't fix my marriage. I don't believe in God anymore. I can't, my job. <laughs> I've been without a job for six months. You tell me there's a God? I don't believe in God anymore. I lost my child to cancer. And if I'm going to lose my child to cancer, what God would do that to me? You see, the word truth is all of a sudden gone. <laughs> The word truth doesn't exist anymore. Yet every single fibers of this Bible is presenting the truth the way it is. 
Do we take it and move it to where exactly where we want it to see if it agrees with us? If it agrees with us, we'll take it. If it doesn't agree with us, we'll throw it away. You put God on the stand. He's not doing what we tell him to do. Put God on the stand if he's not doing what we want him to do. Put God on the stand if he's not completing the things that we want completed. We put God on the stand if he doesn't agree with us. <laughs> I mean, if he doesn't agree with us, then nah, let me just do evaluate. If we put him on the stand, we're using him. Number six, don't use God. Just love him. When you get married, a wedding takes place, and I've done lots of weddings in the church. And, and when the wedding takes place, what happens? There isn't a pledge, a pledge from each person to the next. I pledge you my life. One flesh. I pledge you my, you're the only one. <laughs> one flesh. I'm not, I'm pledging that I'm not having a sexual relationship with anybody. I'm pledging that I'm not loving anybody. I'm pledging that in sickness and health, I'm making you this pledge. And you do it with what? You do it with commitments. This massive pledge with commitments. And as the other person is listening to that pledge, uh, what's going on in their mind? Oh my goodness, they're going to give me them. I am going to use them as much as I possibly can. That's not the way it works. When somebody makes a pledge in a wedding, the other person goes, Oh, they love me. I'm going to love them back. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the pledge works. They love me. I love them back. I want you to show that picture again on the, the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat. The Shekinah glory. Laughed heaven, he came to earth, became a man, died on the cross, spilled his blood as a final offering to get you to be able to go into his presence. What is it? It's the ark of the promise, the ark of the covenant. And we don't look at it and say, now I can use God to get exactly what I want. You look at it and go, I can't believe you did that for me. I love you, God. That's Christianity. I cannot believe you did that for me. I, I love you. We don't exist to use God to get what we want. We now exist to just love him for what he did. That's the basis of Christianity. How do you know if you're using God rather than loving him? I'll just bring it up that you know when you're using your mate or your mate knows when you're using them for the purpose of getting what you want. And it usually ends in divorce. You also know that when you don't, you're not using them, you're just loving them, that takes place. And it doesn't end up in divorce. That's usually what takes place. It's the same way with God. How do you know if you're not using God instead of loving him? I'll just give you four different fast areas. Letter A. You're using God if God doesn't meet your expectations. If you have expectations on God, God, you meet these expectations then your Christianity is based on you using God, not just loving them. I kind of had a bad day yesterday. I, I fell off a ladder, and I got stuck in a tree. <laughs> so what happened was um, I have all these oaks, 78 oaks, and I'm not doing all of them, but you know, I'm trying to get all these branches really, really high to make my property look like somebody trims the bushes. But these are oak trees that I can't even reach around. And so um, 
I got this 14-foot ladder with Matt Borg. He came out to help me. And I got the 14-foot ladder, and I started cutting one of those limbs. As I cut the limb, the limb fell. Big old fat limb, too. It fell. It hit the ladder, knocked me knocked me down, and I and landed on my... Um, I landed like I was supposed to land, but it still doesn't feel like I should have landed that way. So ankles, knees, like, kind of creaking this, creaking this morning. It's like, all right, but we got to keep going. I also ended up buying uh, um, some climbing equipment. You know, you get the speak, the spikes, and then you put the rope around like this so you can actually climb up there, and then you take the chainsaw, and then you, you cut the limbs. And, and I got up there, I don't know, um, 25, 30 feet or something like that. I had a limb, probably about 14, 16 inches, uh, which is a big limb, and then a little handsaw. I couldn't even reach around, but I got a face in, and I was getting exhausted up there because I don't know how to do it very well. And it was exhausting. And I got the face out, and then I'm like, okay, now to go up here, and I cut the thing down. The whole limb fell. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of wood, a lot of weight fell. But then it landed onto the tree. That means I can't get my rope down on the tree. And I looked at Matt and said, I'm stuck. <laughs> I can't get down. And, uh, and he goes, what, what should we do? I said, well, go, go get a tractor. And so he ran over and he got a tractor. And, and uh, you know, I'm uh, getting old up there. And I'm like, oh, I was getting tired up here. And, and sure enough, he grabs the tractor and he pulls the, the limb out. And then I got all the way down. It's a bad day. How many of us have bad days? How many of us have a bad life? How many of us throw God away as a result? <laughs> That's kind of what we do. God, I have expectations. If I believe you, I'm going to have a good day. Yeah. If, I, if I believe in you, I'm going to be comfortable. It's my expectations that you got. God, if, you, if I believe in you, my marriage is going to work. I mean, it's got to work because you've got to provide something for me. It can't just happen. Do you have these expectations? Christianity, it's not easy. <laughs> Christianity is, is not safe. <laughs> it wasn't safe in the New Testament. Christianity is, is not popular. Christianity is true, so everything else is okay. But when all these things start not working for us, ah, just chuck it, get rid of it. How do you know if you're using God? You refuse to fight sin. I've got sin, and I want you. God, I'm done confessing it. I'm tired of it coming up. I'm just going to accept it. Maybe I'll change your word a little bit or do something with it to make it all right. You just grab an old fire insurance. Just grab an old fire insurance. You see the blood on the ark? It's Christ's blood. It's Christ's blood on the ark who spilt it for you so you could have mercy as a result of the sin that you're doing. Next thing you do if you're using God is you change his truth. Any pastor me included, who changes the truth is using God to make sure that they still have a position that they want in their job. That they still have the dollars coming in that they need in their job. Every single pastor on this planet shouldn't be playing with truth. Should just be giving it. And if we're not giving it, we're using it for something else. We're using God. It's the same thing Hofti and Phineas did. You're using it for something. It scares me to even think of that as we handle the truth. I had somebody come in the back one time and said, thank you for preaching the word of God. And I said to him, you be the first person to confront me if you don't think I am. I beg you to do it. Because the truth has to stand. We can't adjust it to the way we want it. 
We're using God if you hate his truth. His truth is who he is. Yeah, we hate it. God says do this. No, I don't want to do that. I want to do this instead. You just took the character of God out of your life. He said it because that's his character. That's his being. He said it because he knows exactly what's, what's best for you. He says it because that's, that's who he is. Yeah, but I don't like it. I hate it. It's all right to have tension with truth. It's okay to have tension with it. But what do you do with the tension with it? You work with the God who gave you the mercy seat. If he loves me, <laughs> you know what, like that. Anything he says, I'll believe. It's where the Bible's at. Oh, that's aggressive statement. No, it's a statement that the world needs. If Christ loves me like that, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, all the way to the cross and the spilled blood, anything he says, I'm just going to agree with. Period. Anything he says, I'm just going to say it's truth. I'm just going to say it's truth. We'll not adjust it. 